0: Hello, fellow teachers and students of the scriptures. Welcome to Teaching with Power. This is Ben Wilcox, and I really want to thank you for joining me today. You know, if you're a teacher and you need some help preparing an engaging, relevant, and powerful lesson for Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, and John 13, then you've come to the right place. Or if you're just studying your scriptures and you'd like some greater insight, some understanding, uh, you've also come to the right place. I love the scriptures, and my goal here is to help individuals and families, and classes, to get more out of the scriptures. So I pray that the Spirit will be with us as we as we attempt to do that. If you're ready, then grab your scriptures and your marking pencils. It's time to dig deep. Now to begin this week, I might introduce the setting of these chapters with the following quick activity. I put the following slide on my screen and I tell my students that there's a picture behind the puzzle pieces. The challenge is to be the first person to guess what it's a picture of. And then I slowly begin to remove pieces from the front of the picture. And you might even offer the winner a little treat for guessing what it is first. And do you know what the picture is? And it's perhaps the most famous painting of all time, Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. And and that's going to be the subject of this and, and also next week's course of study. On the night before Jesus would be tried, Scourged and crucified, he gathered his twelve apostles around him one last time to celebrate the Passover meal, teach them some, some final important lessons, and introduce a new ordinance that would represent a major shift in the worship of God from then on, and to help my students gain a better grasp of some of the main ideas and events surrounding the Last Supper I might have them participate in the following relay activity. And this is an activity that's particularly effective with the youth. Divide your class up into teams of three or four and tape as many copies of the following sheet up at the front of the room, uh, matching the number of teams that you have. And what you're going to do is cut the sheet at the dotted lines so that students can tear off each strip from left to right as they go through the race. Each strip has a question on it. And when you say go, a member of each team is going to run up to their paper and tear off the first strip, the first question, because it's only attached by a a small line there at the top, and bring it back to their group. Their job is to write an answer to that question on the strip using the scriptures, and then to bring it back up to you as the teacher. And you're going to check their answer to make sure that it's correct. And if it's not, you send them back to try again. If their answer is correct, then that team can move on to the next strip. And so on until they've completed each one. The team that accomplishes this first wins. Now, it's likely that there's going to be more than one team that needs an answer corrected at one, at one time. So what you have them do is form a line in order of when they got to you and then they wait their turn until their strip can be corrected. And this can be a a kind of a fun way to introduce and understand this story better. Then after that, you can go in and study specific aspects of the Scripture block a little more deeply. So here are the questions that I might use, and I'll tell you the answers as we go through each one. And be sure to tell your class that all of the answers can be found In Matthew 26, Mark 14, and John 13. And another note, the questions for this week only cover events that occur at the Last Supper. There are other events that are covered in Matthew 26 and Mark 14, such as uh, Jesus' suffering in Gethsemane, the arrest, Peter's denial. But those are events that we're going to focus on in more depth in the coming weeks. It's just one of the challenges of teaching the life of Christ as a harmony. Uh, the content of each of the chapters uh, in, in the Gospels don't always match up perfectly. Question number one. Before the Last Supper, Judas Iscariot agreed to deliver Jesus to the chief priests in secret for how much money? Matthew twenty six fourteen through 16 Answer. 30 pieces of silver. Question number two. What Jewish festival was Jesus and the apostles commemorating at the Last Supper? Matthew 26, 17 through 19. Answer. The Passover. Question number three. Jesus announced that night that one of the apostles would betray him. What sign did Jesus give as to who it would be? Matthew 26 verses 21 through 25. Answer: He said that the man that dipped his hand with him in the dish would be the one to betray him. Question number four: What question did each of the apostles ask Jesus that night? Matthew 26. 21 through 25. Lord, is it I? Question number five. Where did Jesus and his apostles have the Last Supper? Mark 1414 through16. Answer in a large upper room, meaning a room that was upstairs. Question number six. Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to the apostles. He said it represented what? Mark fourteen twenty-two. Answer, his body. Question number seven. Jesus took a cup of wine and passed it to each of his apostles and said, This is my blank of the new blank, which is shed for many. Mark 14:23 through 25. Answer: blood and testament. So it should read, "This is my blood of the new testament, which is shed for many." Question number 8. What surprising thing did Jesus do at the last supper for each of the apostles? John 13:4 through 12. Answer. He washed their feet. Question number nine. What blessing did Jesus promise the apostles if they resolved to do the things that he had just taught them? John 13, 12-17 Answer. Happiness. Happy are ye if ye do them. Question number ten. What was the new commandment Jesus gave to his apostles that night? John 13, through 35. Answer, to love one another as I have loved you. And that, now that activity is going to give them a fairly good introduction to the events that we're going to study this week. Now to help them explore and understand the events of the Last Supper on a bit more of a personal level, I might have them do the following ponder and apply activity After the relay race. So this is going to go from a team effort now to an individual effort. And give them some time to ponder and answer the questions. And then go through each of the questions and invite students to share their answers with an explanation of why they chose that particular answer. To encourage participation, before class you could write down the names of each of your class members on small pieces of paper Popsicle sticks, note cards, anything like that, and put them in a container of some sort. And as you go through the questions, select one of the names and invite that particular student to share. Still, after that initial student shares, open the question up to volunteers, for for anyone that would like to share their thoughts. Here are the questions, and this time... There are no right or wrong answers. Number one, how do you think Jesus was feeling at the Last Supper and why? Sad, relaxed, anxious, determined, grateful, or other? Number two, what do you think was the most important reason? for Jesus to have this supper with his apostles? A. To celebrate the Jewish Passover. B. To share some final teaching. C. To institute the ordinance of the sacrament with them. D. To spend some meaningful quiet time with his friends before his death. Or E. Other. Number three. What symbolism of the sacrament connects most with you? And why? A. The bread and water representing Jesus' broken body and spilled blood, his sacrifice of love. B. The bread and water representing spiritual nourishment, his life and sacrifice that sustain us spiritually. C. The bread representing Jesus' victory over physical death, the promise of a future resurrection. D the water representing Jesus' victory over spiritual death, the promise of forgiveness, e. the cup reminding us of the bitter cup that Jesus drank for us, or f. Other. Number four, what makes the ordinance of the sacrament more meaningful to you? a. Reflecting on Christ's atonement and mercy. b. Examining myself and my actions that week and how I can improve. C. Pondering things Christ did and taught during His life. D. Expressing gratitude for my blessings. Or E. Other. 5. Which of the apostles do you feel you relate to most and why? A. Peter, feeling unworthy to have his feet washed by the Saviour. B. Judas, tempted by wealth. C. The apostles arguing over who was the greatest. D. The apostles wondering if they would be capable of betraying Jesus. E. The apostles expressing their devotion to stand by Jesus no matter what. Or F. Other. And number six, why do you think Jesus washed his apostles' feet? A. To humble them. B, to be an example of service. C, to illustrate His purpose as their Savior. D, to show them real leadership. E, to express His love for them. Or F, other. And after those introductory activities, you as a teacher may want to go into a little more depth on some certain aspect of the Last Supper. And following are two specific lesson plans that you could choose from, if you like. One focuses on the Apostle's question of, Lord, is it I? And the other on Jesus' washing of the Apostle's feet. Now, you might be surprised to notice that I don't have a specific in-depth lesson plan on the sacrament this week, besides the questions from the activity that we just did. There's a reason for that you certainly could do a lesson on that aspect of the Last Supper here. I mean, this is the time and place where the Ordinance was introduced. So it's very significant. However, Jesus doesn't spend a lot of time explaining the sacrament here in the Gospels. Uh, Or perhaps those teachings have been lost in our biblical account. But besides him introducing the symbolic elements of the Ordinance and explaining that this was to be done as a memorial of his sacrifice, he doesn't spend much more time teaching us about it. Now, Paul is going to go into great depth on the significance of the sacrament later this year in 1 Corinthians. Uh, The Doctrine and Covenants has a lot to say about the sacrament. King Benjamin in the Book of Mormon teaches about it, and Christ shares a lot more about this sacred ordinance with the Nephites during his visit to the Americas. But there's not as much here. So since I usually like to stick pretty closely to the text of the scriptures in my lessons, instead of using them as a springboard to go to other places, I've chosen not to do that more in-depth treatment uh, this week, which I I hope is okay. But just know that we're going to talk a lot about it soon here in 1 Corinthians. One thing I do like to spend some time on, though, is the part of the story where Jesus announces that one of the apostles is going to betray him. So for an introduction and an icebreaker for our first in-depth lesson, I like to begin with a little story. It's about a woman who went to church to listen to her pastor teach that Sunday. She walked in and sat on the very front row. And as the pastor taught, he was pleased to see this woman frequently nod her head in agreement and smile and absolutely beamed all throughout his discourse. The pastor could tell that his message was really connecting with her and, and having a profound effect. So he was quite excited to see her approach the pulpit after the sermon was over, and she enthusiastically shook his hand and declared, Pastor That was a wonderful sermon today. Absolutely wonderful. Everything you said applies to someone I know. Now, now what do you think about this woman's statement here? Is there anything wrong with it? And and what might have been a better reaction to the teachings of the gospel that she heard that day? Maybe she could have said, Pastor, That was a wonderful sermon today. Everything you said applies to me in some way. And I know it's going to help me to become a better follower of Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to take a look at a story now where Jesus's apostles demonstrate the proper way to react to hearing the word of God. And although they weren't perfect, and we have plenty examples of their weaknesses in the gospels there's also much to admire in these men and they stand as incredible examples of discipleship now this is this is a short story but it does have deep implications for our worship now i invite you to read that story in matthew chapter 26 verses 20 through 22 with the following one question in mind How are the apostles a good example to us here? Here's the story. Now when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? and how are they good examples to us they didn't point fingers they didn't look around with suspicion or say or think things like oh i bet it's bet it's matthew over there he was a publican before he was an apostle i bet you it's him or it's got to be simon zelotes uh, that's the traitor he's a zealot you can never trust those guys Or Judas Iscariot has got to be the one. I've always had my suspicions about him, and he's been acting kind of funny lately. Nah, that is not what they do. They looked inward and asked, Lord, is it I? Could I be the one that that would be guilty of such disloyalty? Could I possibly be swayed if the price was right? Is there going to be a situation that I'm placed in where I might be tempted to turn my back on my master? And what I love about this is that that I don't believe that this is a very typical human reaction. These men were special, unique, and uncommonly humble. No wonder Jesus chose them. I mean, how do you think most of us would react if the bishop walked into the classroom and said, We've learned through Revelation that one of you students in here is going to end up in federal prison one day if they don't change their ways. What would we be tempted to do in that situation? What would be our thoughts? Oh, I bet it's Kevin over there. He's always looked a bit suspicious to me. Or Sam, he's got to be the one. Or would we be willing to look inward and take the warning to heart and ponder how it might apply to us when we hear the word of God when we listen to a talk in church or general conference when we read the scriptures what's our attitude are we seeing them through the lens of judgment are we only thinking of the ways in which we might use them to correct others are we thinking about how they apply to our spouse our children our family members or people in our wards or communities? Do we spend most of our time pondering how everyone out there needs the counsel? The apostles demonstrate a better approach, looking inward first. And this is just a little bit of a different message than just don't be judgmental. We've heard some of Jesus' teachings already on that topic, with the story of the woman taken in adultery, or His counsel to behold the mote that is in our own eye first. I think this is a little bit different. It's a message about how we approach hearing the word of God. Through what lens do we see it? Or through what filter do we seek to hear it? We can always seek to listen with the, Lord, is it I filter? We take what's being taught to heart. We look for ways in which it applies to us. We do more than just sit and admire the eloquence of the speaker or the appeal of the illustrations used. We can ask the Lord, please help me to know how I can take what's being taught today and strengthen my faith and my resolve to follow Thee. I know that in the gospel we're usually encouraged to think about others and to avoid the me and I and mine mindset. But this is one area that stands as an exception to the rule, one area where it's actually okay and good to be self-centered. And at this point in the lesson, I might consider doing the following object lesson. I pull out a mirror and a piece of glass or a small window of some sort and ask, which one of these objects do you feel the Lord would prefer us to symbolically bring when we hear his words being taught. And why? And You could share the following quote from Elder Uchtdorf, who once gave an entire talk in General Conference entitled, Lord, Is It I? And he said, May I suggest that the Holy Scriptures and the talks given at General Conference are an effective mirror we can hold up for self-examination. As you hear or read the words of the ancient and modern prophets, refrain from thinking about how the words apply to someone else and ask the simple question, Lord, is it I? See, we want to approach God's words with a mirror, with a self-reflective attitude, looking inward and not with a window looking out and focusing on others. In that same talk, President Uchtdorf gave some memorable illustrations of this principle. He shared the following story. Some years ago, there was a news story about a man who believed that if he rubbed lemon juice on his face, it would make him invisible to cameras. So he put lemon juice all over his face, went out and robbed two banks. Not much later, he was arrested when his image was broadcast over the evening news. When police showed the man the videos of himself, from security cameras, he couldn't believe his eyes. But I had lemon juice on my face, he protested. When a scientist at Cornell University heard about this story, he was intrigued that a man could be so painfully unaware of his own incompetence. To determine whether this was a general problem, two researchers invited college students to participate in a series of tests on various life skills and then asked them to rate how they did. The students who performed poorly were the least accurate at evaluating their own performance, some of them estimating their scores to be five times higher than they actually were. This study has been replicated in numerous ways, confirming over and over again the same conclusion. Many of us have a difficult time seeing ourselves as we truly are. And even successful people overestimate their own contribution and underestimate the contributions that others make. It might not be so significant to overestimate how well we drive a car or how far we can drive a golf ball. But when we start believing that our contributions at home at work, and at church are greater than they actually are, we blind ourselves to blessings and opportunities to improve ourselves in significant and profound ways. (laughs) Perhaps that helps us to understand why the Lord seems to emphasize humility so much. I also love Paul's thought from 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith, Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? So, the truth here. When I hear the word of God, if I seek to examine how it applies to me, rather than assuming it is meant for others, then I will become a better disciple. I will grow, change. To liken the Scriptures, what are some situations in your life where you could ask, Lord, is it I? Could it be, Lord, is it I who lacks patience? Is it I who feels complacent? Is it I who is inconsiderate of others? Envious? Slothful? Takes things and people for granted? Always looks for the negative? Is it I who would betray you? In conclusion, if you want the lesson to be a bit more memorable, you might consider providing each student with their own personal reminder of this principle. You could give each of them their very own small mirror to place into their scriptures as a bookmark of sorts. Or they could stick it to the cover of their scriptures with a piece of tape or in a place where they're going to see it frequently. You can purchase a a package of 120 of these little mirrors on Amazon for less than $10. And I'll provide you with a link to those in the video description if you're interested. But you can tell your students that this small gift can act as a reminder of the importance of self-reflection when it comes to the Word of God. A reminder to use the gospel as a mirror and not a window. A symbol that can hopefully prompt them to ask, Lord, is it I? And not, Lord, it's got to be them. And and with that, I say, go ahead. Be self-centered. As far as applying the Word of God is concerned. And now for our final thought this week. The washing of the apostles' feet. As an icebreaker, you could do this little quiz with your students. I call it the who is greater quiz. The object is to determine which of the two given positions of authority are greater or higher in authority. CEO or manager? CEO. Sergeant or chief? Chief. Uh, In the Catholic Church, cardinal? or Archbishop. A Cardinal is higher. In Academics, a Head or the Dean. And the Dean is, is a higher position. In the Military, Lieutenant or Private? Lieutenant. Captain or Colonel? The answer is Colonel. And then finally, general or major general. And this one kind of throws them off because you think it was major general. But actually, a general is higher in authority than a major general. And don't ask me why. Now, this introduction is a bit similar to what we talked about back with our lesson on becoming like a little child. But apparently, the apostles are still struggling with this idea. Of of who should be considered the greatest or the most important amongst themselves, because we learn that here at the Last Supper from Luke twenty two twenty four, and there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. And you know, is our world any different? Uh, we too live in a culture that's obsessed with the idea of rank, position, and status. We're constantly rating. Ranking and classifying things and people, top ten lists, awards shows, championships, hierarchies, pecking orders are all around us. It's it's even actually considered a noble ambition to want to be in charge, or the one that's in authority over other people. So it's a, it's a law of the jungle. Look out for number one, dog eat dog world, where it's often the mighty, the ruthless and the ambitious that triumph over the humble and the tender. And this desire to be in charge is also the cause of great contention in our world. Just like the apostles are having a little strife amongst themselves here at the Last Supper. So so knowing this, Jesus, and understanding that he wasn't going to be with the apostles much longer, decided to take this opportunity to teach them, and all of us, about the meaning of true greatness. And he's going to teach them with an object lesson, a visual demonstration of celestial greatness. So let's watch the Master at work. What does Jesus do to teach his disciples in John 13, 4-5? He riseth from supper, and laid aside his garments, and took a towel, and girded himself. After that he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. So what does he do? He washes their feet. And Jesus' day, the washing of feet, was the work of a servant or a slave. And as I'm sure you can imagine, with with all that walking on dusty roads, wearing sandals in the hot Middle Eastern sun, this probably wouldn't have been the most pleasant of jobs. And Jesus amplifies the imagery by laying aside his garments and putting a towel around his waist. By doing this, he's taking on the appearance of a servant also. That's how a servant or a slave would typically appear in Jesus Christ's day. And then he begins to pour the water and one by one washes each of the apostles' feet, including Judas. And I imagine this would have been bewildering to the apostles, this man that they considered to be not just their master, but the Messiah, the very Son of God, the Savior of the world is doing this menial, degrading task for them. To highlight that point, you could ask if there's any indication in verses 4 through 10 that this was a shocking thing to the apostles. And if they read those, they're going to find Peter's reaction in verses 6 through 8. And and by the way, I, I just love Peter. He's obviously the most outspoken one of the group. He he always seems to be the one that speaks up first or jumps into action. He, he's the one that steps out of the boat to walk to the Savior, the one who vigorously insists that he would never deny Jesus Christ. He's the one that cuts off the ear of the soldier at the arrest in the garden. He just comes across as a very passionate, eager, and maybe just a bit... Uh, impetuous uh, uh, of a soul. And I, I love that about him. So when Jesus gets to him, Peter asks, and in what I'm sure would have been an incredulous tone, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? As if to say, you've got to be kidding me. This isn't right. This should be the other way around. You are far greater than I am. And then he very emphatically refuses and says, Thou shalt never wash my feet. To which Jesus responds, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. And I, I wish I could have been there to actually see the expression on Peter's face. But I picture that resolute, determined look, just melting away into a distressed concern and worry and completely reverses his resolve as he pushes out his hands and says, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head too. Like he's saying, if that's what it requires, then I want all in. And more. I want to go the extra mile. And in my mind's eye, I can just see the Savior smiling at Peter with those reassuring loving eyes and saying, Peter, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean everywhere. It's okay, Peter. Just your feet are enough. And here I might ask if there is a lesson in these verses. Does Peter's attitude hold any insight for us here? Or is there any insight in the Savior's response? A few thoughts here. Peter has a go-the-extra-mile attitude. Sometimes we might suffer from the I'm-good-enough syndrome, the the what's-the-minimum-requirement, how far can I go before I cross the line approach to our discipleship. Peter wants to do more. He wants to be more. And I want to be like Peter. I want to be a wash-not-only-my-feet-my-hands-and-my-head-too kind of disciple. And I also think that Jesus' response to Peter has some significance. If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. We need to let Jesus clean us. Sometimes we might start to think that we can do it on our own, that we can earn our own salvation, that we have the gifts, we have the skills, we have the ability necessary enough to accomplish some aspect of God's work or our own righteousness. And I think in those cases, the Lord will often say, you know, if you think you can do it on your own, go ahead and try. <laughs> and usually in those instances where I've been foolish enough to uh, make that assumption, I, I found how, how little I really can do on my own. And you know, all throughout our lives, we we dirty our feet we take the wrong paths. We step into the mud and filth of the world. And we've got to be humble and willing enough to stretch our feet out to Christ and allow him to wash us through the cleansing power of his atonement and his sacrifice. Well, after Jesus is done, he wants to make sure that the apostles and all of us get the message. In fact, in Verse 12, he even asks, Know ye what I have done to you? Uh, uh, Do you understand why I did this, guys? And he's going to give them and all of us the answer very directly and clearly. But I would ask my students to ponder the lesson first, see if they can figure it out before Jesus explains it. Then have them read John 13, 12 through 17, to see if they got it. And then ask somebody to summarize Jesus' teachings on the subject. What do they feel is the lesson Jesus wanted all of us to learn from the story? Ye ought also to wash one another's feet. I want you to follow my example. This is the way I want you to treat each other. Yes, I am your master and I am your Lord. But consider what I've just done for you. The servant is not greater Than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. You might also want to go back to Luke 22, where Jesus says it this way in verses 25 through 27. And he said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, Let him be as the younger, and he that is chief, as he that doth serve. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth? Is not he that sitteth at meat? But I am among you, as he that serveth. In other words, in the world, greatness is often measured by how many people serve you how many people you have authority over, how many people you have working for you or under you or that you're higher than or more talented than or make more money than. But in God's kingdom, it's the opposite. True greatness is not measured by how many people serve you, but by how many people you serve. The deepest humility is not seen when a person of an obviously lesser station acknowledges someone of greater nobility. Deep humility is evidenced when a being of higher station condescends with love to serve those of a lower. Jesus shows us the perfect example of condescension, humility, and service. His kingdom works differently from the world. And is that true in the church? In your wards, what positions are usually considered the ones with the most authority or greatness, in air quotes? They might say the bishop, the stake president, the relief society president, elders quorum president. But then, who usually gives the most time and effort serving others in their ward? Which callings are the busiest? And again, they'll probably say the bishop, the Relief Society president, the stake president, the Elders' Quorum president. They're the ones that serve the most. And how about the whole church in general? Who is considered to be the greatest or have the most authority in the church as a whole? The prophet, the apostles, the apostles, the general authorities, and general organization presidencies. But consider their age. What do you imagine most people their age are doing at this point in their life? Golfing? Going on vacation? Fishing? Relaxing? Spending time with the grandkids? Living a retirement lifestyle. But what are these men and women doing? Having meetings, making decisions, traveling, speaking, dedicating temples, teaching and preparing talks. I mean, just look at President Nelson. He's ninety eight years old. And what's he doing? I I can tell you it's not it's not playing bingo at the retirement home. I mean I could ask you what you think most men are doing at his age, but I don't even think that's a good question because most men don't ever even get to be his age. At 98, he's still serving. They're all serving. They're perfect examples of Doctrine and Covenants 123.13. Therefore, that we should waste and wear out our lives In bringing to light all the hidden things of darkness, those in authority in the church are certainly wasting and wearing out their lives, bringing light to others or washing feet. And finally, here in these verses, Jesus is going to make us all a promise if we do this. If we seek to fill our lives with service to our fellow man, what will be the result? Verse 17, if ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. It's going to make us happy. If men are that they might have joy, then Jesus just revealed one of the greatest secrets to finding joy. There is an excellent little video produced by the church entitled, Unselfish Service that you might consider showing at this point. Invite them to listen for ways in which we can serve as the Savior did. Thus, our truth today, maybe two aspects to this, true greatness equals service, and service equals happiness. And also, I think we should add The solution to contention, tyranny, and unrighteous dominion is humble service. To liken the scriptures, have you ever felt the happiness that comes from service? Please share what happened and how it made you feel. And who is someone you know that you feel has shown that they really understand this principle of washing feet? Who is somebody they know that really understands the power and the happiness that comes from service. And then what could you do this week to follow Jesus' example in this way? Who could you serve? Who could you reach out to that maybe in the past you felt was on a lower level than you for some reason? And hopefully we can think of ways to humble ourselves and reach out and wash anyone's feet. So, the next time we're tempted to let our egos take the reins, the next time we find ourselves arguing about who is in charge or who's the greatest, the next time we begin to allow our own self interests to steamroll those of our fellow man, I hope that we can remember this image of the Savior, the Son of God, the greatest of all, kneeling down and washing the feet. Of his apostles. Now you might wonder why I'm not moving on to talk about the love one another principle that appears near the end of the chapter. And that's just because thematically, I think that thought ties in nicely with next week's block of scripture as we continue to study the Savior's teachings during the Last Supper. Love is going to be the major focus of. Of John chapters 14 through 17 so stay tuned and with that we're gonna go ahead and conclude this week I know it's a little bit of a shorter video this week that is a rare occurrence for me Uh, I hope that this video has helped you in some way uh, as either a teacher or a student of the scriptures teachers, like I always say, if you'd like to have access to any of the teaching materials that I put together for teachers to help in lesson preparation, go to teachingwithpower.com and you'll find links to the resources there. Uh, Thank you so much for watching everybody. I hope you'll join me again next week. Now get out there and teach with power.